0: And welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest running environmental news hour. Should I be saying this in a more triumphant, newsy way or something? No.
1: We don't care.
0: All right. We're broadcast out of CIUT in Toronto, syndicated on community stations around the country, and available on almost every podcast platform. We're your hosts, David, Stefan, and Lauren. Carceral violence is being expanded to protect fossil fuel interests. Grassy Narrows is facing down gold miners in combination with unchecked mercury contamination. Key Canadian climate legislation is under attack from the oil industry. The Progressive Conservatives have released a climate plan, and the Liberals have released a budget. Today we will be discussing all of this and more, and Stefan will be interviewing Tim Groves, a researcher for Free Grassy, about industrial encroachment into Grassy Narrows and activist researching. First, I just wanted to mention I saw an argument in the Globe and Mail today saying that conservatives are often justified in ignoring expert opinion because often experts want them to be simply not conservative. And this was in the context of Doug Ford's universally apparent COVID-19 failure. Doug Ford's ideology failed years and years before he came into power, but now that he's in power during COVID-19, it's just so much more obvious and immediately viscerally obvious the extent to which his ideology truly has failed.
2: This this to me, I can only go to Stephen Colbert's uh, reality has a well-known liberal bias.
0: Stephen Colbert has a well-known Joe Biden bias.
2: Well, that's a different, matter. but anyways, uh, we're off the top here. And for those of you who don't know, we record on Wednesdays and then we air on Fridays. And in the middle of those two days this year is the Joe Biden climate summit.
1: Yeah, and ahead of that climate summit, I'm thinking about the new target. That's going to be announced, obviously, and I'm oscillating between sort of like nervous and excited, and then like totally nihilistic and underwhelmed and bored. And I'm like over it already. I'm like a I'm like an angsty teen, not only because the target will like most likely be incredibly underwhelming, given that on Monday the federal budget indicated that they kind of only have 36 percent of emissions reductions banked on. But but anyway, but I'm also sort of underwhelmed because of the lack of willingness to commit to, or even use the language of fossil, fu- fossil fuel phase out and the amount of money that continues to be funneled into the oil and gas industry. And basically these things and others combined indicate that like we're far from a winning trajectory, regardless of what the, the target they choose to put out, they meaning the Trudeau government choose to put out on Thursday is. And, and it's just, it's, it's doubly frustrating because we know that like getting to 60%, reductions by 2030 is truly so possible. There was a report that was published on the 21st. So so that's today, that's on Wednesday. It's a report that was put out by a coalition of like seven different organizations. So it was like Environmental Defense, Equiter, Stand, West Coast, and several others, basically based on some really solid modeling and some really good research that was done. And, and, And the finding is that through like flexible regulations as they call it and a really sharply increased carbon price. We could in fact hit 60% reductions by the end of this decade with tech that's currently available. So like that's not relying on pie in the sky dreams of like massively at scale CC um, carbon capture utilization storage rollout. But like everything we need is already in existence and on the table, the only sort of like added ingredient that we need to throw in all that's needed to get us on that pathway is a serious commitment to hard work and the willingness to expend political capital on Justin Trudeau's part, which at this point, I don't trust him to deliver on. I really hope I'm proven wrong. I hope by the time this comes out on Friday, I'm like embarrassed and eating my words. But
2: straight up, Canada's target's going to be too low. Honestly, even if they match, I think best case scenario, they match the United States at 50% below 2005 levels. And that's still 2005 levels, which is choosing the highest point you possibly could and then declaring victory. We should be using 1990 levels as our benchmark. And therefore, even if they, hit, even if they match the states, they're not, they're not going to get there.
1: Which is what the UK has. And the UK's target that they released this week is like 78% below 1990 levels. And I know, obviously, it's an entirely different ballgame. They're not a fossil fuel producing petrostate the way we are. But like, still, the fact that they're gunning for 78% reductions below 1990 levels, and we're like, mm, we can maybe do 40.
2: Yeah, no. And their plan includes tackling things like aviation, which is something that we have not even considered. Um, thing I'll be looking for, though is if the Liberal government actually commits to directing Export Development Canada to decarbonize its investments, because this is something that actually won't directly impact Canadian uh, CO two emissions, because this is what they support overseas. But is something that 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 the Biden summit is hoping to do is something to create. We've seen it from many other places across the world already, saying that they're they won't support fossil fuel interests, uh, or they'll try to decarbonize their fossil fuel support across overseas. But Export Development Canada, it has. Traditionally supported a lot of extractive industries, and it has to be reformed if we take this seriously.
0: And now for some news headlines. Canadian corporation Enbridge is still exerting influence over local Minnesotan law enforcement to fight the protesters and water protectors that are resisting its Line 3 pipeline. Minnesota is currently considering passing a bill to protect oil interests against protesters by throwing people in jail for up to five years if they obstruct construction. Similar bills that make it a felony to interfere with oil and gas infrastructure have already passed in 15 U.S. states and are pending in five others. At least 14 IPCC authors, along with over 400 leading climate and environment experts from around the world, have written an open letter praising water and earth protectors and activist groups for creating momentum for social and economic transformation, while denouncing what they see as a worldwide criminalization of protest, writing, quote, Around the world today, those who put their voices and bodies on the line to raise the alarm are being threatened and silenced by the very countries they seek to protect. The state of Florida, just passed a bill that allows the state to block local governments from cutting police budgets and brings in harsher punishments for protesting in general. Steve Martinez, the Standing Rock water protector who refused to testify to a U.S. federal grand jury because prosecutors were trying to use him to help shift blame away from the police for the violence that occurred at Standing Rock, was recently released after being held in jail for over 60 days. In Bangladesh, at least five workers at a coal plant were recently killed by police as they protested 10-hour workdays, bad working conditions, and unpaid labor. Voice of America reports that at least seven people were killed and over 100 people were wounded when local residents were were originally protesting the construction of that coal plant four years ago. Back in the United States, Joe Biden is holding migrant children in concentration camps that are contaminated with environmental toxins while discouraging northward migration away from environments that are becoming increasingly difficult to live in due to the climate crisis. A company called the Colonial Pipeline Company, which is committed to excellence, has underestimated the size of its North Carolina spill for a second time. According to the Associated Press, the company originally said back in September that the Colonial Pipeline had spilled 273,000 gallons of oil into a nature preserve. Then it said in January that it was actually closer to 1.2 million gallons. Now in April, it is saying that the second figure is itself underestimated. The Taylor Energy oil spill off the coast of Louisiana, meanwhile, has been going on for almost 17 years now, and is almost as bad as the Deepwater Horizon spill, although most of the oil is being collected as it spills out, which is a temporary solution. Taylor Energy, which barely exists as a company anymore, is saying that nothing can ultimately be done about the spill, which could continue for a hundred years. Japan is planning to dump one million tons of contaminated water from the Fukushima nuclear plant into the ocean. Joe Biden agreed this was the proper thing to do. The U.S. State Department said it is, quote, in accordance with globally accepted nuclear safety standards. Here in Ontario, Grassy Narrows First Nation, which has been living with widespread mercury poisoning for the 50 years since a paper mill dumped 10 tons of mercury into the Wabagoon River, is at risk of ongoing mercury contamination in the soil, which the province is still doing nothing about. It came to light a few years ago that there are likely two pits of mercury waste buried on the territory, which the province promised to excavate, but it has so far done nothing and is instead trying to get mining companies onto the territory to dig for gold. Stefan will be interviewing Tim Groves from Free Grassy about this topic later on in the show. And finally, the Canadian oil industry, working through politicians in the Progressive Conservative Party, is trying to destroy the pivotal climate accountability bill, Bill C 12 which seeks to hold successive governments accountable for setting and meeting emissions targets. The bill needs to be strengthened, however, because, while it would set five-year targets up to 2050, there is no 2025 target, and, as the Canadian press reports, it does not specify what those targets would be and would not require an actual number or a plan to get there until at least six months after it becomes law. The only penalty for failing to meet the targets would be a public admission of failure.
1: C12, the uh, climate accountability bill, it went to the House for, I think, the third round of debates um, last Friday. So that was Friday the 16th. Um, And it was debated for about an hour, hour and a half going well trucking along um and right at the end of the debate period the uh conservatives cannot remember the mp for the life of me but introduced um a motion to amend the bill that would basically kill the bill um arguing that the bill fails to um implement a plan that recognizes that climate change is real and then the second one was was a gripe about the makeup of the advisory body um but this is it's an it's an incredibly frustrating sort of um, hurdle for this bill to to have to hop over because um so so the sort of the legislative process really loosely in a nutshell, I'm not an expert on it, but basically, like a bill has to go through the House for two readings. um and then once it passes through the House, it goes to committee for amendments and further sort of, um, yeah, for, for, for amendments. And then once it passes through the committee, then it goes to Senate where it's voted on again, and only then can it become a law. So um, we're, we're still only in kind of that first third of this uh, legislative process. So we have a long way to go before a potential election, whether that election is called in the springtime, um, if um, if the conservatives choose to like vote no confidence on the on the new budget that was introduced or whether that's in the fall either way we don't have a ton of time to get this um to get this bill pushed through which means that something like this stupid amendment being thrown up as a hurdle in its way is really frustrating because the conservatives don't have enough votes for an amendment like this to pass so it's it's truly just there to slow things down a little bit and the fact that they introduced it in like the 11th hour on a friday afternoon right before the debate was supposed to wrap up was demonstrates that it was specifically to slow down the process because what it means is that with the uh with the budget being dropped on monday all of this week all of the house time is of course being taken up by the budget so this bill hasn't gone back for debate to the house so when it does go back for debate to the house hopefully sometime next week maybe the first thing they're going to have to talk about instead of actually debating the nuts and bolts or the meat and potatoes of the bill is this silly amendment to cancel it which isn't which is it's it's foolishness, it's silliness, and it's also coming from a party that apparently has decided they care about climate change now because they put out their stupid plan. And they, and and in, even earlier when this bill was, was first introduced at the end of last year, beginning of this year, the conservatives said that they would support it. So they're going back on their own word. They're not proving themselves to be the climate champions they would like you to believe they are. I'm incredibly annoyed, as, okay. as many are, understandably.
0: The oil industry was not involved enough in the in the process, not involved enough in the advisory body, which is why the bill can't be cut.
1: Yes, which is why they're grumpy. Because you know, the oil and gas industry should definitely be on an advisory body about climate policy.
0: And now we're going to go to around two minutes and 40 seconds of music. And uh, then we're going to come back to discuss the conservative climate plan and the liberal budget in its relation to climate. Thank you. That was The Hallucination, formerly known as A Tribe Called Red. And the song was Enon, featuring Maxida Marok. Thank you. Thank you. And now back to the Green Majority. The leader of the Federal Progressive Conservative Party, Mr. Aaron O'Toole, was recently broadcast, standing before a large screen of majestic, human- and animal-free wilderness, selling the first climate plan his party has ever produced. He wants 30% of new car sales to be zero emission by 2030, a $20 per ton consumer carbon price rising to $50 per ton maximum by 2030, a carbon tax on large emitters going up to $170 per ton by 2030, which is already in place, but only if other countries do something similar, Uh, 15% of natural gas consumption to be renewable natural gas, a 20% reduction in the carbon intensity of transport fuels, and a tax credit for carbon capture and storage. He would also like to introduce a carbon points system, Which he calls a personal savings account, which is like the Liberals' carbon pricing scheme, but less effective and more confusing. The Liberal carbon price charges you for carbon consumption, but then gives that money back to Canadians at a fixed rate, which means that you earn money if you use less carbon. O'Toole's plan also prices carbon consumption, but it gives you the same amount of money back as you pay in, and then forces you to spend that money on something that it deems environmentally friendly. It therefore doesn't really incentivize people to emit less CO2, but it tries to get people who emit a lot of CO2 to eventually buy an EV. During his presentation, O'Toole repeatedly assured Canadians that the plan was innovative, and then, after facing a harsh round of questioning from journalists, said that he thought it was at least pretty innovative. As journalists hounded him about whether provinces could keep the carbon pricing mechanisms they already have in place, he stated over and over again that he would work with and respect the provinces, and he also repeated many times that it was not a carbon tax, as journalists repeatedly assured him that it was a carbon tax, and that he had betrayed his promise to end the tax, and that he had betrayed conservatives generally, until he ended up cutting a woman off and speaking over her, as he assured us again that it was not a tax, because it would be run by a third party, and the government would never even touch the money, and that it may take a little while for Canadians to see how innovative this is. former Conservative Prime Minister Brian Mulroney called for innovative Canadian leadership on climate change. It's innovative. That's what makes it daring. I think it's pretty innovative. It will take uh, some time for people to really absorb how innovative this is. Et c'est, c'est, c'est une approche innova, uh, innovative, bien sûr. So it's innovative. Uh, I'm very excited. It's innovative. It's time for innovation on the environment. Merci beaucoup.
1: Well, David, you talk about Aaron O'Toole speaking in front of a screen and I'll, I'll show you a screen, a smoke screen, <laughs> oh. and it's this climate oh. plan. <laughs> oh, oh. No holds barred here on the green majority. No, this, plan, <laughs> this plan's a joke. <laughs> of course. No, it's a joke. Um, and of course, like like I said, right before we went to break, it's even more of a joke because of the way the conservatives have pulled support for for C-12. Anyway, don't be fooled. None of our listeners are fooled. This is silliness. If this is climate progress, it's two steps forward, one step back. It's like, great. We've got a small portion of the party to like half-heartedly admit that climate change is real. But like this plan, saying plans in, in, in quotation marks, isn't a plan to stave off the worst of the climate catastrophe and save people. This is a plan to like tick a box and win a few more votes in the GTA in the election when that election is called like two things alone the fact that it's it's replacing 15 billion dollars in low carbon investments with 15 or with 5 billion dollars in carbon capture and storage and like like i guess i guess this is where they think their plan will result in lower emissions than the current um liberal healthy economy healthy environment plan but like kind of unclear. Cause to be honest, I'm not going to lie. I haven't read this plan in depth. I've just like read a bunch of articles with the highlights because again, it's, it's almost not worth your time. Yes. It's worth our time to like talk about it and critique it today on the show. But like, this isn't a real climate plan. The fact that we need to come up with a better term for it, because even just referring to it by that moniker is, is, is I'm sure convincing some people that it's valid and it's not. And, and it, to boot, it limits their their version of a carbon price, their carbon tax that isn't a carbon tax. It limits it to $50 per ton down from $170 per ton that, that the carbon tax is supposed to go to or the carbon price rather is supposed to go to um, in the next few years. So it's just it's it's inadequate. I don't know what else to say. Sorry to you, Steph.
2: No, that's uh, so I think you can't you could not read this in depth because the whole thing is 17 pages long. Like it's, it is a pamphlet at best. And I think people don't, f- like, hey, like, so if you, I, I think the key for me here is just how ridiculous their plan for how the pricing mechanism would work. Because, so for the liberal, uh, you know, price on carbon or the way they're doing it, you know, the government accepts money uh, for uh, across the board and then it gives it back out to people, sort of at a uni- at a, at the same rate. So everyone gets a certain back. So it ends up being a little bit of a progressive uh, move because you know if you spend if, you know, if you're a jet-setting person who's spending a ton more on the carbon price, you get the same amount of money as someone who has less money. So it at least in some way tries to deal at least a little bit with inequality of of the of the nature. Not I'm not going to say this is I'm, as you'll see in the next segment. Not going to love the liberals, but it, that's the thing. But at least it's all money right? It's all actual money that you get back and you can spend. The conservative plan kind of gives you like points or credit. It's like gift cards. It's the way you can spend the money, you, the things you get back from their plan isn't even, it's in, a, it's in what they call a low carbon savings account, which you can only do certain things with. And it's like, who in any world would want this to happen? Even if you are the most staunch conservative, no one wants to pay money and get gift cards back.
1: I imagine it's like, it, it, I, it sounds like in their ideal world, it would be like air miles, where like you rack up a bunch of air miles points and then you like go to go to buy a flight with it. And they're like, oh, but not that flight. Oh, but not that, you can get this coffee maker. You want this coffee maker instead? Well, it
2: also has to be low carbon. So like, it's like, oh, you get these things that are not like, yeah, It's, it's so weird as a way to do it, it's. I think the only way I can understand it is that it is a plan meant to fail. It's a plan that's meant to be so bad that everyone thinks okay. it's terrible and then therefore they will hate it. That's the only way you can understand their pricing mechanism. And it's as much a tax as a liberal plan. Neither are taxes.
1: I think you're exactly right. It's a plan that's set up to fail. It's designed best case scenario. It gets them enough votes. Amongst millennial voters and like folks in Southwestern Ontario, that it gets them a win and then they can try to roll it out and they can be like, oh, it didn't work. Womp, womp. Don't yeah. worry. I guess climate action isn't a thing. Forget about it, guys.
0: Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party just released its 2021 budget, which will have to be approved by at least one other party in order to avoid an election. Like O'Toole's climate plan, the Liberals' new budget, is extremely innovative. They are even spending $5 billion on innovation over seven years, attempting to decarbonize large emitters and adopt new technology. They'll spend $1 billion over five years in clean tech innovation to show private investors we mean business and draw in their support. They will reduce taxes by 50% on businesses that manufacture zero-emissions technologies. They will spend $9.6 million over three years on a center for securing critical minerals, and $36.8 million on R&D for processing minerals needed for large batteries. They'll spend $56 million over five years on developing standards for electric vehicle charging, $15 $15 million over four years to switch federal government buildings to clean electricity, and $104.6 million over five years on emissions regulations uh, for vehicles and landfills. They're going to try to sell $5 billion worth of green bonds. They're going to provide tax breaks on investments in carbon capture and storage, and spend $319 million over seven years on carbon capture and storage themselves. They'll spend $67 million over seven years on implementing a clean fuel standard, $67.4 million on ensuring accurate market measurements for low-carbon fuels, and $228 million over eight years on buying low-carbon fuels for shipping and flying. They're sticking with their $15 billion on public transit and adding $17.6 billion on a green recovery in general, with $4.4 billion on interest-free loans for retrofits, $1.4 billion over 12 years on disaster mitigation and adaptation, and $2.3 billion on biodiversity.
2: I have five big budget thoughts, which I'll try to run through at a relative speed. Uh, the first is that actually the biggest climate move in this budget isn't being billed as one at all. And so didn't actually make your announcement, which is that it's the childcare investment uh, as ultimately $8.5 billion. That's per year. They plan, After the $30 billion to get it up, they plan to spend $8.5 billion per year uh, to maintain $10 a day childcare. And that's in 8.5 billion dollar industry, they're going to create out of thin air that is a low carbon industry. You know, care work is climate work, and so unquestionably that is the climate story of this whole budget, which is not even going to be built as a climate story, but unquestionably is the biggest thing that they'll do. Um, the second is that they're terrified of leading on climate, like it's the the, the, the the it so much money is allocated in this budget. Uh, to encouraging private businesses or individuals to do the work. And most of that money that they're putting forward is towards quote-unquote innovation, which comes with no guaranteed reductions. You know, like the $4.4 billion... um, or is it, yeah, the $4.4 billion of interest-free loans requires people to want to take those loans and action them. It's, it's an incentive, but it's not mandated. So little of what they said in this budget actually mandates change and actually will directly lead to change. Uh, the third is that the lack of a wealth tax is a missed opportunity, uh, because it create because it would create an avenue to both fund climate action and also move funds from what would be high carbon places into low carbon industries as rich people's car rich, rich person's dollar is much more carbon intensive than a poor person's dollar the fourth uh, as sort of refers to point 2 which is that was at the 8 billion dollar accelerator that which is their big ticket item really for this is has a high ceiling like obviously, like, you know, if if this works and they get a bunch of great new technologies out of this, that's a high ceiling, could be a lot of reductions. But again, no guaranteed reductions from this. It's a it's a hope to build an industry, but it's not it's not the nuts and bolts of what's necessary to actually reduce carbon today or tomorrow. Uh, and lastly, uh, what they make for available for carbon capture and storage really can make or break the plan. Uh, There's conversations about it could be there for green hydrogen. If it's there for green hydrogen, that's good news. But it also could be there for blue hydrogen, which is basically just giving money to the oil and gas industry, which they do in this budget in spades. Um, And that's this funneling, yeah, that's this funneling taxpayer dollars into massive oil companies. But those are my five thoughts to you, Lauren.
1: Your thoughts are beautifully organized. And I don't necessarily know I can compete with that. I'm kind of just going to throw a bunch of spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. From an auditory standpoint um right off the top i did just want to highlight at least according to my understanding um david did say that like yes this is a budget that that does need support from at least one other party um otherwise we'll go to an election from what i understand the ndp has committed to supporting this for theoretically to, to keep us from going to an election, whether that's because the NDP really supports this, or if they just don't have the funds to go to an election right now, unclear, but theoretically this budget shouldn't, shouldn't necessarily be the reason we go to an election, which is great because nobody wants that right this second. Anyway, anyway, moving on like Stefan said, yes, there's really fantastic stuff with childcare in this bill. And yes, that's kind of like the most exciting Maybe the only exciting thing that we can sort of like herald with this bill is like truly, truly progressive uh, with this child care plan. We're going to be mimicking the the Quebec plan that, um, although although also not perfect, um, is lauded by many and really upheld. And like I know like I have, <laughs> speaking from personal experience and anecdotally, I have, a, I have several friends with children in Quebec and they're like, yep, we love our child care plan. So like, great people endorse it. People are stoked about it. So that's really positive. The other thing that's positive is of course, um, the $15 minimum wage, which is specified as a federal minimum wage. So I would love for somebody to explain that to me. Does that mean only that, that it only applies to federal hires, or does it just mean that that is an across the board minimum wage that I'm not sure of. I'm sure I could have Googled that before the show, but I didn't. And I see Stefan's doing it now. Thank you for that. Um, it should be acknowledged that in 2021 $15 an hour is still basically a poverty wage but it is still a positive move in the right direction we're hitting that number that sort of low threshold so so those things are positive looking strictly at climate and environment policy though as as they name it within this budget there there is less to get stoked o- to get stoked over um especially because it's not totally clear to me and even in the conversations i've been in what of these numbers um we're including sort of like previous announcements that have been made either with like the fiscal statement that was made in, in the fall or with the climate plan that came out in, in December. Um, if those numbers are are in addition to these numbers or if this is the budget, these are the numbers regardless of what was said in, in past months. So like that sort of confusing me is I don't quite know what the what the real dollars are regardless of, of what is actually being said in the pages of this bill or bill budget. Um, and then, yeah, to, to pull on something specific echoing what Stefan said around that money that, that is going towards carbon capture utilization and storage tech, there's something like $319 million devoted to it over seven years to support like R and D and demos. and, and like Stefan said, that risks sort of prolonging our relationship with fossil fuels. Because yes, if it goes into something like green hydrogen, which is um, which is clean, which is renewable, which is in no way related to the fossil fuel industry, that's fantastic. That opens us up to to sort of new opportunities. Um, but it could be tethering us to something like blue hydrogen. Um, It could be tethering us to um, direct air capture um, and a lot of technology that isn't proven at scale that um, even if more research and development dollars are put into it might not necessarily ever scale up. So it could just be sunk costs that we're losing in a time when $319 million could, could be going towards other sort of like shore and safe bets. Um, when it comes to climate reduc- climate reducing tech, <laughs> carbon reducing technologies is the word I'm looking for. Bottom line, um, the budget, unfortunately just sort of shows those incremental shifts that the liberal party is known for, and that we know just don't allow for a viable future. Um, we need so much more money going into things than this allows for. And the kind of dollars that are like, that like truly transformative change can result from just aren't being shown within this document.
2: Yeah. Uh, just to clarify, the federal minimum wage only refers to uh, places that are federally regulated industries. So uh, apparently, you'll impact about 26,000 Canadians who currently work in these industries that are currently making less than that.
1: Okay. So, like, that's not nothing for the 26,000 people, but it's also not, it doesn't, that's not going to make a change in the life of the average minimum wage worker in Canada. So. Less exciting. The other thing I did want to mention that I totally forgot is, um, Stefan, you were talking about sort of, um, the deep home retrofit loan program that's been put in place. And I've heard criticism over that because of course it's, um, there's, there's, there are pots of money that are being dedicated to, um, Low-income homeowners and low-income, uh, like wage earners, and unfortunately, um, it's great that there's a pot of money that's being set aside to help them with with deep retrofits for their homes. But it is a loan program, and even though there's interest forgiveness, there's no loan forgiveness. So it's the idea that in order to help these people transition their homes to to being net zero or, or carbon neutral homes, we're expecting them to take on debt, um, and that isn't progressive policy. That's not the kind of world we want to go into. It would be so much better if these were just grant programs. These people could retrofit their homes and write off the cost absolutely. So yeah, yeah. it's not ideal.
2: Well, the biggest question I think that left with us is how much can we trust uh, that the $200 million that's being given to Environmental Environment and Climate Change Canada, the ministry, to develop new regulations really take that on? Because like that's the big question. If if that money goes to you know really pushing for EVs from a standpoint of regulation, then you could see a, a lot more coming from this budget than than we expect from a money standpoint. And the second is what's missing as the last point is there's no talk here about supporting workers who are transitioning from oil and gas into lower industry and uh, into lower carbon jobs. And that has to be a fundamental part of real change. And so until they're funding that, they're lying to themselves.
1: Yeah. So it's like, bottom line, it's a solid liberal plan, but that's it. It is a solid liberal plan.
0: All right. So now we're going to go to a short break and then Stefan will come back with an interview with Tim Groves, a researcher for Free Grassy, about neocolonial industrial encroachment into grassy narrows and activist researching. Thank you for listening to The Green Majority. We are entirely listener-supported, so if you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And thank you so much to everyone who's already donating. Peace.
2: We're here with this last segment of the show, which is an interview with Tim Groves, who is a researcher for Free Grassy, to talk about the developing story with mining claims and the Grassy Narrows First Nation. Welcome, Tim. Hi,
3: good to to speak with you.
2: So to start us off, can you just give us a bit of a history behind the story?
3: Yeah, so Grassy Narrows is a community about an hour's drive north of Kenora, Ontario, like in northwest Ontario. And. They are located downstream from a paper mill in Dryden, Ontario. And starting in the early 1960s, that paper mill, when they were creating bleach to turn their paper white, they used a chemical process that involved mercury, this thing called a chloralkali plant. And so a lot of mercury waste was created by this process. And many thousands of uh, liters of mercury ended up in the river and started to devastate this, this community. They found out that you know their fish was poisoned, that this fish is a huge part of their livelihood. These are people who many of the people in the community worked in sort of like uh, tourist camps where people would come up and do fishing or hunting in the area, they'd go fishing and they acted as guides those camps all had to close, people lost their employment, their land became poisoned. And people didn't know at the time, but there was like these devastating, long lasting health impacts from that mercury poisoning that are passed down, mercury passes through the umbilical cord, and is passed down generation to generation of people being incredibly sick, and suffering the impacts of mercury poisoning. And so this community that faces all the other impacts of colonialism that so many indigenous communities have also is one of the communities. I mean, there are many indigenous communities that are also facing environmental racism and facing poisoning of their land and their rivers, but this is one of the communities that is like most well known that poisoning. And so this community has been, you know, standing up and they've been saying like they want to take control of their land. Stop the government from just doing full-out development on their land. So they've been fighting logging. And when clear-cutting was coming to their community, they had one of the longest road blockades in Canadian history. They've done all sorts of resisting. And although there have been devastating impacts from mercury poisoning, it's a very like strong community that's standing up for itself and push back against some of the ways that both industry and government have been treating them. Right. One other piece of the history yeah, yeah, that I kind of glossed over, because you know, I said, "Oh, it was from like starting in like the 1960s, 1975." There was this plant that expelled mercury waste, but a lot of the waste was also buried or contaminated the soil or buried in various locations around. And so, uh, more recently, people found that there's like an ongoing source of mercury. Some mercury is still entering the river, and the Toronto started two big exposés about places where there are mercury dumps. And in their recent article that we'll get into more, they were talking about how the government still hasn't done anything to clean up or to activate those pieces of uh, those areas where they know there's mercury. And as someone who's been following this and doing research, I feel like beyond those two that the Star found, I think there's most likely many other places where there's mercury. That's in the soil or in various ways from this paper mill that's still leaching into the river and still, you know, adding to this poisoning that's happening.
2: Right. That's important extra context, especially given the provincial government has said they will clean this up and nothing. And yet what's interesting is what what may interesting, maybe infuriating is the more right word, is that this news story that you just referenced is connected in that it is the Canadian state pushing more stuff onto this land, but it's almost another encroachment that is added on to the failure to clean up this mercury. So can you tell us what this new research turned up and why it's important?
3: Yeah, so I um, recently was asked if I'd be willing to look into the number of mining claims that existed within Grassy Narrows territory and sort of went back and figured out the in the mining system, they revamped the system in 2018. But I could find the, you know, the number of mining claims that were within Grassy Narrows territory in 2018, and compare it to today, and it it grew fourfold, like there's 122,000 hectares of land that have mining claims staked on them right now. And that's like double the size of Toronto. So there's huge amounts of land that have been staked for mining claims. And it's sort of like, this boom where right now the government is going and allowing all these companies to state claims is like the first step for companies that want to do do mining is to do this. So I was I did a bunch of work trying to like understand all the government data that exists on this. And then the Toronto Star built upon this and did their expose and sort of showed just just how much the mining claims have increased in Grassy Narrows territory.
2: Yeah. And so, for those maybe who might not understand what that would mean for these people, what's the concern about this boom?
3: I think like there's a couple different things. I'll just say right now, like partly what this article had to do with it was there's an increase in mining claims, but one company, Trillium Gold, has sort of gotten to the next stage in the mining process beyond staking a claim and they've applied for a permit to do uh, exploratory drilling. And As it gets closer and closer, these mining companies actually starting to like mine for gold, there's going to be more and more pollution that's created and gold mining creates devastating amounts of pollution. There's giant tailing ponds that are made to try and capture much of this pollution. But like there have definitely been many instances where mining projects have led to huge amounts of pollution entering river systems. And this is a community that's already been devastated by pollution. So any pollution above this would just be like devastating. So one part of this is the devastating impacts of gold mining. But the other part is that Grassy Narrows has been saying like, since the 1970s, they've been saying this is our land and we should be able to control what sorts of projects go on inside our lands and in like 2007 they said we don't want any industrial projects here they did a land declaration in 2018 and they said like we need sovereignty over our own lands and so this is a situation where this is land that like is the land of the people of grassy narrows and the ontario government believes that they can violate grassy narrows law and can go and allow people to state claims in this area can allow people to drill and it's like this is grassy narrows land and the Ontario government is giving all these other people rights to use and exploit their land and so like it's those two things it's the the devastating impact that could come to a community that's already been poisoned by industrial activity and it's the fact that the Ontario government should not have jurisdiction to allow people to do this sort of activity on land that belongs to the people of Grassy Narrows.
2: Right. And so you mentioned that this is sort of a part of a boom. You know, that this is that this is one instance and you've researched this particular instance, but this is likely happening all over the place. One of the questions we often get from listeners to the show is they want to be given something that they can do. Like if I want to be part of a solution, how can I sort of work towards this? And it seems like this research that you did is a valuable and important step towards understanding just the scope of the potential damage that could be caused by these efforts. And so if
3: people wanted to
2: do what you did for other
3: areas, how might they go about it? So in some ways, it's like actually quite simple to do this research. You know, I know for Ontario, they publish a set of data called MLAS, where you can download all the mining claims in the province as a shape file. You can use a GIS program and open it up. And then I was uh, able to obtain an outline of Grassy Narrow's territory. And it's fairly simple to use a GIS software as using QGIS to figure out which mining claims exist within their territory. Now, I'm making this sound really simple, There's a lot of complicated aspects to MLS, various different types of boundary claims and canceled claims and stuff. So it it is a complicated system that takes a bit of time to learn. I'm happy if anyone wants to do this research, they're more than welcome to reach out to me and I'm happy to share what I've learned but it's fairly simple to use GIS software to do this. And it's the sort of project that it would take a bit of learning, but someone who hasn't done GIS before, it's it's one of the simpler things that you could do and people could, could do this. So I think the willingness to download the software and try this out would be like a great step for people. But I work with people who work closely with people in Grassy Narrows. And so I've worked with people and built connections where I also doing stuff with Free Grassy, I've sort of, been provided with this shape file of the outline of their territory, and it's about building relationships. So I've built relationships with people who've in turn built really strong relationships with people in the community. And so it's those sorts of connections that are really needed to, to be able to do this work on that scale. But if you're already connected to community and you want to do this work, I would say it's it's definitely something that's within reach to do that kind of research.
2: Yeah, Certainly feels like it's likely to be increasingly important, especially if the land claims are any indicator. It seems like what's next, of course, is much more drilling. yeah, is really quite dangerous, so last question, what would be the one thing you'd want people to take away from this?
3: I obviously can't speak on behalf of the community, but there were some like really powerful quotes in the Toronto Star article that made me think this is going to be like a major point of resistance. like, Grassy ne- Grasslands is a community that's had years-long blockades. It's a community that's willing to like stand up and fight for their land. And I wouldn't be surprised if the government doesn't back down and stop people from staking mining claims in their territory. Doesn't withdraw this plant. I wouldn't be surprised if that you see some sorts of blockades or direct actions. And it really shouldn't have to come to that. So if you go to freegrassy.net, there's an action alert people can fill out where they can, you know, write a letter to the minister. And I think people should be willing to stand up and support these sorts of struggles. So that action alert is like a very simple thing that people can do. But if there are blockades, if there are protests, if this struggle needs to continue because the government isn't, you know, respecting Grassy Narrows law and Grassy Narrow's territory. People should be willing to figure out how they can step up and get involved in supporting this community and other communities that are you know, struggling to oppose uh, mining projects.
2: Thank you so much. So you just want to give us how folks can support grassy again? Where do they go?
3: So I'll just type this in to make sure I'm saying this right. If you go to freegrassy.net right now on the front page. The first article says, withdraw all grassy territory from mining and mineral exploration now. You click on that link, there's a little form where you can fill in your name and a little message and send it to the minister. You yes. have to write the message. You can add one if you want, but they have a message there and you can fill that in and send a message to the minister saying that you support grassy narrows and want to prevent mining on their territory. So thank you so much. Grassy.net. Awesome.
2: Tim Groves, a researcher for FreeGrassy. thank you so much for coming on and for all your work.
3: Yeah, my pleasure. Great speaking to you.
1: All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week.